Welcome, everyone, to Los Libertinos Podcast. I am your host, Carlos Abelard, and this is Chingazos and Fire, episode number 27. Our guest today is Jason Rink. He is an award-winning producer and director of documentary films. He's a director of two upcoming films, The Steel, which follows the efforts of the biggest grassroots election protests in history, and Q Sent Me, which focuses on the vato with the horns that enter the capital on January 6th, otherwise known as the Q Shaman. Uh, uh, welcome, Jason, to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. Fair enough. And yeah, man, thank you uh, for coming on. Um, I've uh, uh, been uh, like your social media friend for a couple of years, and I've always liked some of the stuff that you put on. And when you started... Uh, coming out in the last uh, half a year about kind of uh, doing some of these projects. Um, uh, I wanted to uh, reach out to you and get you on, and it's uh, exciting to uh, have you on. But um, for anybody that doesn't know uh, some of the, your background, um, can you please get into like, uh, like where you were born and raised and kind of how you got into filmmaking and kind of where you're at now a little bit, and then we'll kind of get into the, the other stuff? Yeah, yeah, totally, man. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm a I'm a child of the 70s and 80s. So, you know, I um I'm uh I, I was born in 1974, graduated high school in 1992. So, uh, you know, when that was going on, I was uh and I was in high school, you know, me and my friends used to like to sit around and make movies with uh these old video cameras, you know, VHS tapes and high 8 cameras and and you know, while some of the people in our high school were out there um you know, playing sports and getting into trouble or whatever. You know, we were in rock bands and and making videos and and you know shooting our friends skateboarding and and playing music and and then making making little short films to entertain entertain ourselves. And so, you know, this is back before you know all of the technology we have now that makes making video so much easier. Um, but uh, when I you know, decided to go to college, I I was shocked to discover you could go to film school. And I was like, oh, wow, this is I could actually do this. Right. So I went to film school and shot in 16 millimeter film, made some student films. I was in New York State. I was at Rochester Institute of Technology. And just through a series of of life events and circumstances, I never decided to go out to L.A., um, I only spent one year in in film school in New York and I went to Ohio State. Ohio's where I was born and raised. Um, finished um, my college years there. Never graduated, by the way. Uh, but I was kind of a film and theater major. So, um, and then just I worked on some indie films back then, just in Ohio. But Ohio was not the burgeoning capital of indie filmmaking. And uh, I knew that if I went out to LA back then, I was going to find myself in trouble. This was like 1996 or whatever. And so, um, I ended up just staying in Ohio, got into commercial banking for 10 years 
and did a little stint uh, for three years actually as a as a pastor. So I, you know, cr- crazy different pathway. And um, what ended up happening was I, I was getting to the, the end of my tenth, you know, being in, in in commercial banking for about a decade, you know, making great money, very unhappy though. And uh, in 2007, I just stumbled across uh, the message of Ron Paul when he was running for president back then. And to anyone who was around back then and got into Ron Paul back then, it was a totally different world. Social media and even YouTube wasn't what it, what it is now. And so, um, you know, you would get in, you would hear something about him uh, and then you would try to find other people locally to like talk about Ron Paul and try to get him elected. And there was this whole website meetup that you would meet people through and that's that's how you got connected and and so i ended up starting the columbus ohio meetup for ron paul no one had started it yet this was early in 2007 and uh never been political before that and i was just like you know hey i'm uh i think i'm going to just get involved here and so we did we got in and back then this grassroots movement just exploded there was like a thousand people that joined the columbus ohio ron paul meetup we met we had, you know, learned as much as we could about his policy positions, Austrian economics, you know, foreign policy, all this stuff. And then we went out and, you know, held uh, banners over overpasses to get people to Google Ron Paul, you know. And so it was a crazy time, met a lot of great uh, libertarians back then. And that was really when I got got into this whole thing of, of the ideas of liberty. Um, and And essentially what happened was um, my political activism ended up sort of getting in the way uh, or being a real um, a real problem for me, also working for like the big banks, right? You know, the banks were getting bailed out and I was learning about the Federal Reserve. I was speaking at end of Fed rallies and, and then going into work on Monday morning. And, and, you know, I just got to a point where I was like, I either have to have to cool it or I need to find something else to do with my life. And so through a series of circumstances, had the opportunity um, I got recruited to run a nonprofit that was getting started down here in Austin, Texas, uh, back in 2009. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe I could reignite my passion for filmmaking, um, you know, in a totally different world, you know, like having learned about it in 1992 and then it being, you know, 2009, you know, nothing was the same. I hadn't learned a bunch of, you know, computer programs for editing or anything like that. I was just like, well, let me start this nonprofit and see if we can't use media to try to, you know, spread the ideas of liberty. And that's what happened. I came down in 2009, started an organization, bootstrapped a documentary film called Nullification, the Rightful Remedy that I produced with, um, you know, Michael Bolden of the Tenth Amendment Center, a great organization out in California. And Tom Woods was in that uh, as well. Met Tom and became friends with him back then. And uh, really, that was my first foray into making a feature documentary. And once I got back into it, I just never wanted to turn back. And so, um, you know, really spent the next couple of years making some other projects, ended up going to work for a company called Emergent Order, a guy named John Popola down here in Austin, Texas, who John became my mentor. Um, he was the genius behind the Keynes versus Hayek rap videos that were massively viral, you know, say 10 years ago. And uh, a lot of other great projects ever since then. And so I had the opportunity to work with just a high level group of people who'd spent time at Nickelodeon, MTV, Viacom, but also believed in the ideas of liberty, free market economics to find out how do we better, you know, 
use how do we use media to entertain and educate around these ideas? And I had the opportunity to learn from the best. And so um, spent a number of years there, ended up um, leaving and building my own company um, in about 2015. They kind of led us to where we are today. So I still have a, a production company here in Austin, Texas. We do commercial work and have done commercial work for all sorts of brands and companies. But my real passion uh, is the work that we'll do for either organizations, you know, in in the Liberty space or the independent films, um, two of which I'm making right now, uh, as you mentioned, the steel and Q sent me. And, um, you know, we're, we're, I'm looking to do more and more work that would be in the space of using entertainment, uh, and, and, you know, legit feature films and that sort of thing to try to seed and spread the ideas, important ideas of Liberty. Um, so that's kind of what, kind of what was going on there and, and what, you know, that gets you up to speed on, on what, what's where I came from. Perfect. Perfect. Uh, I think my audience will appreciate that uh, background. I think they'll uh, know that uh, for sure, uh, you know, uh, you took advantage of the situation that you were in and things fell on your lap and you played it out the best way you could. And, you know, I mean, uh, we call the people like that, you know, hustlers or, or you know, go-getters or whatever, but, uh, you know, people like that are always uh, okay in my book, man. But, uh, um, so like as a film producer and, um, and a filmmaker, uh, narrative control within your movie is important, right? It's something that you're consistently, uh, having to think about because it's the way you're going to steer your audience towards, uh, you know, the ride that they're going to have, uh, that's going to benefit them and benefit you as being the filmmaker. Um, when the government, uh, and its media homies, try to implement its narrative control. Why is it so important for it that anybody that ever questions its uh, narrative has to be, uh, you know, crushed really fast uh, right off the bat? And how does someone or uh, someone individually or a movement counter that? And especially your text is going to be important because uh, you've already started taking some chingasos, uh, on the chin already. So uh, what, what is your take on that, on narrative control as you know it as a filmmaker and its relationship that government has with the audience of the of the electorate? And, you know, kind of play with all that if you can a little bit. Yeah, man. But, you know, I want to put a little context behind this because I've thought a lot about this. Um, you know, for your audience, what, what they would want to know is that uh, when we started making the, the this first film called The Steel, we... we you know, I was fo- started to follow the grassroots Stop the Steel movement around the country uh, just because I saw a story there. It reminded me a lot of the Tea Party uh, that happened after Ron Paul's 07, 08 campaign. And, uh, but yet it was a little different. It seemed like there was more of an anti-establishment uh, streak in the MAGA movement than there was back in the Tea Party days. And I just said, you know, there's going to be a story here. And so we just decided to follow the story. I hadn't had my mind made up about the election. Um, you know, I, I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016. I wouldn't have called myself like a MAGA guy. I still don't call myself a MAGA guy. I'm, I'm a philosophical liberta- libertarian still. And if Ron Paul was on the ballot, I'd probably still vote for him as old he is, as he is right now. You know, I mean, he's still the man to me. But um, what was what was interesting was, was the decision to make this film. Um, a lot of it had to do with what I saw from 2016 to 2020 happening in the media of trying to promote a narrative around Trump, around MAGA, around the right, 
um, trying to bury him, trying to injure him, uh, trying to get in the way of him being able to, you know, be president. And, um, you know, even though I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, you know, I believe like, hey, you know, uh, if the election um, is, is if people vote somebody in, like they should be allowed to do what they can do. And it's like there's Congress and the Senate and all these branches of government. and They get together and like they make stuff happen. And, you know, I don't you know, I, I like gridlock as much as anybody. And I'd rather those guys not do a lot of things to curtail liberty. But um, when I started to see the media and um, then big tech start creeping in to try to silence, you know, uh, dissent, to try to control the narrative, to try to shape it, it really got my attention. And I started to see that happen more strongly through COVID. Um, that's really where I began to notice it, right? Um, but, but the other thing I want to say is, like, I think, I think it's really important to recognize that the mainstream media and the corporate oligarchs, like they've only been losing control of this for a handful of years. You know, it's only been like a decade that that social media and YouTube and all these platforms have started to come into their own. And it's only, I think, been in the last four years where Trump won. I don't think he was supposed to win, but he did had a lot to do with alternative media and them starting to recognize, wait a minute, this whole internet thing is going to be trouble for trying to maintain the narrative. Right. And so <clears throat> me as a filmmaker, I was like, well, let me go out and tell a story around this election and see what's happening. I was just figure I'm going to be a journalist. Right. Well, by the time we got to, uh, you know, January 6th, um, Right after that, you know, we were filming there on the 6th. Uh, we, me and a lot of the other people that were a part of that, you know, covering that movement or were a part of it, right? And we had access to a lot of the leaders and we were hanging out with them, got all of our social media accounts shut down and permanently. Um, and actually myself, it was only after I put out a, a video trailer for the second film that we're working on called Q sent me the, the Buffalo shaman guy from the Capitol. Right. And, um, you know, we've had, I've had multiple accounts shut down. We had, I had my Facebook and Twitter accounts permanently suspended, have had other ones that were associated suspended permanently. And when that happened to me first in January, um, I recognized that even a guy like me, thousand thousands of friends, you know, thousands of Twitter followers. I mean, like 3000, maybe, you know, I'm not like a big deal. I'm just some guy trying to make movies out there and I'm getting deplatformed and people aren't going to hear about me. And then I realized there was hundreds of thousands of other people that were just getting their accounts shut down. And um, what, I, what I started to recognize was that it, this was all about the preservation of the narrative. And as I started to see things develop around January 6th and how that narrative was going to be shaped by the corporate media, by big tech, by the permanent political class to try to put through an agenda. That's when I realized, oh, wait a minute, look, they're trying to put Domestic Terrorism Act into place. They're trying to put Patriot Act 2.0 into place. Um, they know they're losing control of the narrative. They know they're losing control of people's minds. And so they've got to do something to shut it down. And so when that happened, I was like, it's more important than ever for me to tell these stories. It's more important than ever for people like yourself and other people to continue to be out there and to use their platforms to do this. And 
And so I think what your question was, was kind of why is it so important for them to control the narrative or, you know, what's going on there? And I, and I say, well, you know, that is the key because the way that they control the narrative is they, it's through propaganda and it's through academia and it's through cultural shaping uh, in institutions and people. And they do it in such a way that it makes people feel like they're adopting their own opinions and beliefs about the world around them, not being forced into a certain narrative. That's the real trick that's happening. And so some people have called this the cathedral. You know, Michael Malice and, and uh, Curtis Yarvin ha- have, have talked about it, where there's this force that is the media and academia that works together uh, in unison. They're off the same sheet of music. It's not really a conspiracy, but it's not a coincidence. And it, it, it shapes people's perspective on the world. And then people begin to respond in a way that's favorable to the outcomes that they want. Yeah, um, I have, in uh, listening to your response, I, and this is awesome because I guess we have a podcast, you could actually talk to Freestyle a little bit, and I've never, so when you said that you started noticing the narrative to shut down Trump in 2016, or, you know, the narratives against him, you don't think, um, you know, he he deserves a little bit of it, and my my thing is not that, maybe he deserves it, but his narrative, too, was to say that, you know, that Obama's birth certificate wasn't real and all this stuff. And, you know, you know, so he played narratives, too. You know, I mean, so when you when you get into the ring and especially someone like Trump that is like a wrestling, vato, you know, so he knows the game of, uh, of wrestling and all that. You know, he knows what he was doing to 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 with narratives. I mean, he's a, a master of this, probably, you know. Um, so doesn't it seem like it was a fair, you know, I mean, he. He wanted to throw chingasos and they threw back. And uh, but I, I I thought it was like fair game, you know, uh, you know, I mean, you know, he talks some shit and it rubbed people the wrong way. And that's what happens sometimes. Um, am I wrong to think that, you know, he didn't deserve some of it, especially when all these media class people looked at Obama the way they did that when some guy comes in saying, oh, this guy is not even he was born in Kenya and had a fake birth, you know, whatever it was. I mean, that's how he started his run with that narrative. and that that uh, motivated and got a lot of people that that spoke to them in that way, like cited and hey, you know, so because I think that same energy was also in the steel energy and in the Q energy, that energy is is is, is there. I mean, I guess some people call it like a little bit of the populist. Uh, it's in there. But uh, I don't know. Is it is it, you know, was it really that Trump like didn't deserve any of it or, or you know, he got into the ring or, you know, what do you think? Oh, yeah. You know, so, I mean. Here's the thing. So I think it's a great point. You know, no one's really ever asked me that. And, um, you know, I think what most people want, what most people want is fairness, right? So now I think it's really naive to think that the corporate media is going to be fair, right? I, I think what we need to, number one, establish or what you want to know is that I have a perspective that says the battle is between the establishment and the anti-establishment that we're looking at right now. Or, you know, the the big club that you and I aren't in, and then there's the people that are in it, right? And so what I think I noticed was that though Trump is, you know, a guy with massive name recognition as a billionaire, maybe, I don't know what his real wealth is, who the heck knows, right? But he's like, he, and he was in the club, 
right? Like he's in the rich guys club, you know, he's got his photos with all the past presidents, you know, Hillary Clinton wishes she never got a photo with him. Right. But it's like, it's like, as soon as he stepped in the political ring, it became really clear that he was actually a third party candidate or he was the anti-establishment candidate versus the establishment GOP and Democrats. And so what I think is different is that there was a there was a difference in how I think he was treated by the media and that there was uh, certain certain false scandals that were promoted about him and passed on through the corporate media and all of that in order to sideline him because he was an anti-establishment candidate or he was a loose cannon, really. Like, I just think he was not predictable. I think they couldn't count on him to do what the regime wanted him to do in a way that they can count on a Mitt Romney. They can count on a John McCain. They can count on a Joe Biden. They can count on certain people to move the regime's plans forward. In, in the form of a narrative or a, a speaking out or as far as policy, because a lot of the policy and agenda moved in the direction that the deep, the deep state or the war state or the bureaucratic class or the cathedral, it was yeah. bumpy for them. It was bumpy. But so is it that he messed up the production of the show? Yeah. Rather than like the storyline that, you know, that runs through the growing of government always happens kind of storyline. Yeah. Or? Yeah. And, and, and to your point, like this is I think I was on with uh, with uh, on Three Man Beyond the Wall, you know, Pete brought up like, hey, the regime still won under the Trump years, you know, in a lot of ways. And it's like, I wouldn't disagree with that. And what I actually think is interesting is one thing that I think and, and again, Trump's not a libertarian. I don't think he loves liberty. Like, I think he's an, a, a flawed egomaniac with thin skin. And, you know, he has personal vendettas. And he's also loyal to the wrong people. And I think that he didn't actually understand how deep the swamp and how entrenched the establishment is in D.C. That he actually thought that he could come in there and, like, do whatever it was that he wanted to do. And I don't even know what that would have been. but I think. It, w it became clear that he was surrounded by establishment creatures and he chose people that were terrible. Like he made terrible decisions. He he's not a savior in any way, but he somehow he was able to channel this populist sentiment. And then he was also able to recognize that there were certain things that the, the base or many Americans would have wanted him to do that I think could have been possible for him. At, had he remained there for a while and had he been been able to have gotten rid of some people that he didn't realize were, you know, not his friends, he was surrounded by traitors or whatever. And, and so my point being is that, and, and I could be, that all might not even be true. Like, I, like, I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know what would have happened in another four years of Trump. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how much or less it would have been bad than the Biden years, right? I think what happened to me, though, and what happened to a lot of other people was just a recognition that, wait a minute, the media and big tech, um, all of these corporate institutions and all of these cultural powerhouses have a leftist agenda that they're really trying to move forward by hook or by crook, 
whoever's in office, however they can make it happen, right? And that that agenda is rapidly happening and it's happening very, very quickly because the cultural shaping engines are in the same corner as the progressive left politicians and political class. And over on the right, though you may have people who still want to undermine liberty and and grow the state in ways that really suck, they don't have all of these cultural shaping institutions buttoned up. They don't really own the cathedral in the same way. And there is a growing populist and anti-establishment sentiment that's transpartisan in the country that someone can actually step forward and lead those people to really challenge to challenge the establishment. And so I think in some ways what we're getting at is like that Trump found himself in a place where he was able to do to like he's now like kind of got these people backing him and he was an imperfect uh person to do that but it's that transpartisan populist revolution that the establishment really wants to shut down and they want to keep those people from having a voice and frankly when it comes to January 6th i think the real story of January 6th is you know Think about it. It would have been amazing if the representatives would have walked out of the Capitol and said, hey, guys, what's the problem? Let's sit. Let's just talk. You guys are apparently pretty pissed about something like why don't we have a roundtable and what do you guys really want? No, that didn't happen. Right. Obviously, what happened was you had a lot of people in Congress, I think, who and a lot of people in the halls of power that were scared recognizing that there is deep unpopularity for the whole system out in the world enough that a million people would show up in D.C. on a cold day and thousands upon tens of thousands would surround the Capitol and some people would go in there. And so, you know, for me, I think um, I think the idea here is that um, not it's not so much about Trump or about uh you know who he is or what he did or didn't do it's more about this uh transpartisan populist movement that i think is possible and can be led by a by a good powerful leader of integrity who's not trump but into the future to actually make real change that could uh thwart the desires of the deep state or the establishment and I think that the Stop the Steal movement and then Jan 6, you know, kind of what all happened there is just a, a window into that. And um, in the same way that for me, I, I look back and see what happened after Ron Paul and the Tea Party as a, a similar type of energy, but that was instantly co-opted by GOP insiders. Whereas with what I see going on on the right and with MAGA is you have people who have deep suspicion about um, the military industrial complex. Now they see Afghanistan as a big grift for 20 years. A lot of them, they see the intelligence communities as not being their friend, right? I was at rallies where people were saying, chanting Fox news sucks. So they're, they're not only just done with CNN, but also Fox news, you know? And it's like, that's a, that's a sea change. I think in a massive group of people who are, 
who I think are now finding themselves a little bit more aligned with people like you and me, where we could have a conversation about foreign policy or the or police or the intelligence agencies or more philosophical ideas around the state. And so, um, you know, I, so for me, um, I see a big opportunity to move forward into a conversation that doesn't have anything to do with Trump, doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, the right versus left. But it's sort of like, hey, what would this transpartisan coalition be where we can actually make real change at the local and state level? And how would that flow and, and possibly make an impact on the federal level? Hey, what's up, everyone? Please visit our sponsor, BUenterprises.com. BU is a company that helps you with relaxation, stretches, and breathing techniques that you can implement in your daily life. You are able to get customized programs depending on your lifestyle. I've been using them for several months now, and I can tell you that I feel a lot better mentally and physically. So please visit buenterprises.com. Use on the promo code at checkout the chingasos, all caps, C-H-I-N-G-A-S-O-S to receive 20% off. And if you join their program, please email me with some of your results. I want to know how it's going for you so we can communicate a little bit and talk about our results uh, together. So please visit buenterprises.com. Thank you. Man, that's perfect, man. You were uh, reading my mind or you're uh, uh, following into my narrative of questioning here because my next question was going to be, you know, uh, that filmmaking to me, uh, it's a craft, but it's a unique craft that like to me, at least in general, tends to be with with people that have kind of natural inclinations towards like left-leaning arts kind of style. But, you know, I'm not one of these guys. I, I'm just like what you just said right now. Like, um, you know, the, the left versus right narrative is something that quickly puts us into, divides us. And, and, and then everybody puts their guard up when, when really the, the narrative should be that we're like complex individuals and that makes us more unified, that we're layered you know, actors in this world trying to, you know, do the best we can, most of us. And uh, why is why isn't that narrative the one? Is it simply because it'll be too uh, it, it goes against government narrative controls? Or is it that um, promotion of uh, individualism is always going to be uh, bad for, you know, collectivism and, and the way that they can put us in groups and control us this way rather than individuals you know yeah i mean man that's a great question and you know when you think about it it's kind of interesting because and you know the the founding myth of this country is a myth i mean that you know a lot of what we learned about you know the founders and like then the constitution all this stuff there's just a lot of fairy dust and myths around all that stuff but to the degree that we can we can sift through that and find some things that you know are important and instructive it's like I do think there was a sentiment, at least to a certain degree, where you had like the people unified against the power structure. Now, of course, you had a lot of people who are leaders and founding fathers who are very powerful and they found themselves in very powerful positions after that. And they doubled, you know, and they found ways to, you know, keep that for themselves. So that's a, a conversation for another time. 
But the idea that the people could be unified or at least not divided amongst each other in a way and to accomplish something, I think it's something we've got to really look a long ways in our in our short history as a country to find because I think ever since then the 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 controlling elites and you know I don't want that to sound so Alex Jonesy but like I just think you look at everything and it's like man there is definitely people um in organizations that recognize that the United States is a flow of trillions of dollars it's like the largest corporation that you can have have control over and you can direct power and influence and money through it and so they've recognized that for a long time and the real threat is that the people will recognize hey you don't actually create anything government all you do is grift off of us and then hand stuff out to your buddies and make everything worse for us so to the degree that we can have our focus shifted against each other versus come to that collective realization where it's like, no, you know, I think of the movie, I think it's uh, a bug's life, uh, you know, a Pixar movie, I think is the one where the, where the ants rise up or the, you know, against the grasshoppers or whatever. And it's like, yeah, it's like if the ants can get together and rise up against the grasshoppers, we outnumber them. And, um, you know, there's a lot of ways we can peacefully shut it down and protest what's going on there. And so I think the divide and conquer strategy is is critical. And it's it's also why I think many of us who are libertarians, we're kind of beyond that, where we try to be, because we see that the divide and conquer strategy is being used to generate right and left in this country is then being used to generate racial division and division of sex and division of religion and all of these things to the point that we can find no common coalition together. And so then libertarians, I think, by and large, we get to a place where we recognize, hey, it's our shared humanity that is our that's that's our true power. It's that you and I both have autonomy over who we are, over our bodies, over our you know future, and over our property. And it's like if we can have autonomy over that little bit of kingdom called my person and my property, that I'm so powerful. And if me having control over my property and my person can find coalition with other people who have control over their property and their person and we can work together in a voluntary way man that's super powerful like we realize the magic there and that's why it's critical i think for for divide and conquer to happen and so i think with with media and with creation of content that can be used to shift people's minds I think that message is a really a good one to try to get out there, like things that can that we can use to get people to rec- recognize and reflect on their shared humanity, recognize and reflect on those those things that I think are common to people. And what it what is what is strange to me or what I don't really know is is why, uh, when and why media got so totally co-opted by primarily the left. Um, you know, you go back into Hollywood in the early days, um, you'll find that it was much more conservative. Like there was a lot more of a conservative strain in Hollywood. I would never say it was really libertarian, right? But there's definitely was a pendulum shift where, you know, people's ideas um, and what people believed who made up a lot of the power center of Hollywood 
was more conservative and right wing, and then it shifted more to progressive leftism. And so I think what the what we've got to look at is recognize that those power centers are always going to be dominated by some something and that we either got to figure out how to take those over or we have to build alternatives that can compete with them. And by competing with them, we have to compete not only in reach and audience, but in quality and in, you know, excellence of storytelling or entertainment. And so when I look at that, I say, look, we got a big job to do. And so right now I'm making a couple of films that are overtly political, but I've got other projects in, in, in the works right now in early pre-production that are more entertainment driven, that aren't even political in nature. Right. Um, and, and it's all, it's all about trying to figure out how can we you not, know, not only tell these stories, but get more people involved in the industry who believe what we believe. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I've heard you speak, uh, to this term and I, uh, and I had never heard it, but, uh, you know, what you, what you say behind it, uh, is, uh, is, is, is powerful because, uh, once again, it, uh, it crosses, uh, political lines. And, uh, you've said, uh, you mentioned before, a uh, voice and exit. And that also aligns with one of your past documentaries, nullification, because that's also, uh, in the same spirit, but at the state level. Uh, can you kind of talk about voice and exit and nullification and how, uh, everybody can use those remedies in a way to, to, to counter, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, an abusive state. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to actually uh, probably somebody in your comments at some point will reach out and say, here's who came up with the term voice and exit. I forget who it was. Um, I was involved with a friend of mine named Max Borders down here in Austin, Texas. And he, he, he started a conference called Voice and Exit uh, a number of years ago. I spoke at the first one on the topic of nullification and the, the nature of that, that that was actually like a TED Talk uh, event that was all kind of artsy and libertarian in spirit. We were trying to pull in voices from the left and the right to talk about interesting ideas and human flourishing. And so, but what always stuck with me around that concept is that when you come, when you get down to it, that's what we have as free people is the idea uh, to be able to have a voice and not just as a vote. By the way, one of the reasons why I think this deplatforming is so bad is because, um, you know, and, and personally, like I went without any social media accounts for a few months until I was able to open up some new ones and evade capture. Right. But even that is still bad because I can't speak freely. I'll get shut down again. And what I noticed was how lonely that felt. I, I was like, man, I can't talk to my digital friends. You know, I can't say the things I believe and get my opinions out there and engage in the conversation. It really was isolating. And so it's like, number one, I think having a platform in a town, town square is important for us as human beings to engage and to move the conversation forward. But then also a way to change those who you delegate authority and governance to, right? So what, whatever we're into, if you're into anarchy, that's fine. Recognize that anarchy's never been about no government governance though it's been about voluntary governance and it's like we as people we like to outsource the administrative tasks of governance and like there's efficiency found in governance and outsourcing aspects of governance and so that's just a natural thing now 
when it comes to being ruled over, that really sucks, right? And so we don't want that. And so, but but the thing is, is finding a way for us to be able to shape and outsource governance in a way that's still voluntary and peaceful and all that, like that's a part of being free. And and so if we don't have that because either the elections are totally corrupted or, or have no impact or there are no elections or there's no vehicle to do that, that takes away part of what it means to be free. And then if we don't have the ability to leave that agreement, to leave that contract that we didn't sign or whatever, and go somewhere else and form our own communities that really align for us, then again, we're also not free if that's true. And so we've got to have voice. We've got to have exit over um, over the pandemic. It's been very, very clear that shutting the exits is something that We've seen happen more strongly in some countries than here, but that it's possible that people will voluntarily submit to it or that, you know, it will be forced upon us. And so those two things, I think, are critical. We've got to ask ourselves, what are we going to do to maintain these and, and to make sure that that always exists for us? Um, and then, you know, the natural thought about that or whenever we get into these questions of, peaceful, voluntary governance, it, it will naturally lead us to talk about localism and federalism. Because once you add so many people to the mix, you cannot satisfy everybody's desires. You're going to get to a place where people's preferences are not going to be honored or going to be violated. And so what we notice is that we've got to get down to the smallest types of, of communities to be able to make agreements around and then continue to make uh, agreements at, as we gather in larger groups. But those agreements have to be more general. They have to impact less personal issues. you know. And what we've seen in this country is that the very most personal issues have been elevated to the highest levels of government and then thrust down upon 300 million people. And so back when I made the film Nullification with um, in that phrase, has been used a long time, but Thomas Jefferson talked about uh, nullification and James Madison. But this idea that because of the way that the U.S. Constitution was set up and it reserved any rights that weren't enumerated and handed over to the federal government are reserved to the states, that the states themselves could refuse to obey unconstitutional or laws that they didn't like. And so in order to do that, you have to have you know, government agents at the state level who get this and are willing to stand up against the federal government, right? And so, you know, when I started making that movie back in, um, you know, 2010, you know, it was mostly right-wing people, conservatives who are into this idea because Obama's in office and, you know, they didn't want the healthcare thing or whatever. Um, but it's interesting because it's marijuana legislation that's been the you know, number one issue that we could see how this thing might happen on any issue. Because back in, I think, 1992 is where that law first got passed in California, you know, like the first medicinal marijuana law. I, my date could be wrong, but it's around that time. And it's taken decades, but we're at a place now where marijuana is almost totally federally legal in some way. Most states have passed it. And I think we all agree at some point that's going to be the way. Well, it, it started with states pushing back. 
There's other laws that's happened with as well. But what we can, and, and now what we're seeing is under Trump, we saw some, uh, you know, blue states start talking about this. Wait a minute. We don't want to agree with these Trump policies. What if we didn't want to obey them? And then under COVID, we started seeing some, some states and some governors fighting back against this stuff. And so I think these, these ideas go hand in hand, right? Voice and exit go along with this idea of federalism because we may have an opportunity not to exit the country yet, but being in the country, being able to exit to a state that's got people in, you know, authority that are able to stand against the encroachments of the federal government. And that can create a space for us to organize as free humans, you know, with the gov- federal government out of the way, we create a more free space in this one state. Multiple states do that. And then when you've done that, you've created a space where then individual counties and communities and cities can sort of reorganize and do the same thing. And, and so that idea is so powerful. And I think if more and more people understood it, understood the possibility around it, then we start getting into this idea of, well, strategically, how do we pull it off? And I think that's where a lot of interesting discussions are happening right now. Perfect. Um, you, uh, well, uh, one of the, well, he's a, you know, he's commonly known, you know, uh, there was an interview where uh, uh, Curtis Yarvin was uh, being interviewed by Thad Russell. And um, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that uh, if the election was stolen, it was stolen fair and square. Now, that's his take. Uh, what's your take on it since you had uh, front row seats there and you had cameras there on uh, on uh, what happened there? Um, well, what, you know, what, what is the yeah. narrative behind all of that? Yeah, yeah. So I think um, if I would simplify it, what I would say is that um, though I didn't know going into uh, this and I, I hit the road in mid-November, went across the country, many states interviewed dozens of people from you know, state representatives to, you know, active activists, to the, you know, the whole gamut. Um, you know, I was, I'd never attended a Trump rally in my life. And the first one I went to, I was at the front row with a camera. It was like totally bizarre. Right. And I'm like, what am I doing here? But, um, you know, and what I discovered was that there was a number of things that, um, were worth focusing on. And when I, and what I what I say is this, I say to the degree that we have any agreement as a, as a nation. It's that elections happen in a particular way and that constitutions matter. Now, you and I could agree that constitutions don't matter from a standpoint like the government ignores them, right? Like, I think that's pretty clear, you know, that that's true. But that doesn't mean things are legal. So it's like, yeah, we have government that isn't legal right now. And that's also why we could say, oh, it's like a criminal organization. It, disregards its own constitution. Okay. But that being said, to the degree that elections are supposed to happen in a constitutional matter at the state level, what we can see and what I think is very easily provable and is that a multitude of states changed election laws over the course of 2016 to 2020, but primarily in, in 2019 and 2020. Um, around covid and so there were changes that happened around covid 
that were done in a non-constitutional manner, meaning that boards of election, electors, secretaries of state, individuals who didn't have the authority to make significant changes that weakened the ability to, you know, signature check or monitor elections or there being no chain of custody for ballot drop boxes, um, mailing out ballots to every registered voter, for example, in some states, when it turns out those voter rolls are not clean. They have years worth of people on them that aren't even valid or can't even vote. And so it, it, what we saw was we saw activities happen that made it easier for illegal votes to be cast. And those votes being votes are illegal because they don't abide by the laws that are actually put in place by the state legislatures. And so because there was only a 60,000 vote difference that separated Biden from Trump across five states, I believe, there's really a very small margin of error. And so the question was whether or not, if we just look at that, not any of the stuff around like, oh, were there, you know, were the CCP like uh, putting virus code in Dominion machines or whatever? Or is there, you know, like wacky stuff? Okay. Even if that was true, like impossible to prove, nobody's been able to prove anything like that. And I think a lot of that stuff was distractions. What I think is really important is for people to recognize, oh, wait a minute, COVID was used as a cover to change laws in a way around voting that created a, a lot of confusion and made it possible for things to happen that we will probably never know who the deserved winner was on Jan for January or for November 3rd. So that's the, the primary thing I think is important to recognize. The other thing that also happened, and this was talked about in the famous Time Magazine article that talked about um, fortifying democracy, was that after Trump won, the left really got busy uh, finding ways to funnel a lot of money in specific ways, dark money through, you know, NGOs and nonprofits and whatever, um, in order to try to shape the outcomes going into 2020 in different areas of the country. Okay. And while that's not illegal, what I, uh, some of it might've been, but what I'm all, all that I'm saying is that, um, there were absolutely things done in advance in order to try to make sure that Trump would not win. And this wasn't just done by Democrats, right? But that there are powerful organizations and entities that were flowing money in for a specific outcome. And so I think that that whole pathway is worth looking into because as you go down that and you start seeing what was happening there, there are some things that are questionably legal, that are definitely questionably legal, if not illegal, that happened there as well. And so for me, I really like to focus on the things that are like, hey, how, how is this supposed to run? And then, you know, should, should it be run that way? I, so I think it's almost the second category that maybe Curtis Yarvin's talking about where it's like, hey, it was stolen, but it was stolen fair and square. Like, listen, the system works a particular way. And if you can outwork your opponent through like really gray area stuff, like, hey, that's the system, man. And so one of the things I do talk about, though, is I, I say, listen, the narrative is what is important here. What's up, everyone? Please visit PalomaVerdeCBD.com for all of your CBD needs. Paloma Verde is a family-run business that my wife and I own. 
We have had it for over two years now. Um, we are blessed to have that as our side company that we run um, together. Um, but uh, we need your help and your support to keep it going. So if you are already buying CBD products, but you'd want to buy them from a small business that shares your values. And if you want to support the show, buy, um, uh, visit palomaverdecbd.com and purchase some CBD from, uh, from us. Um, and we would uh, uh, appreciate it. So please, uh, at checkout, use the promo code CHINGASOS and receive 25% off anything in the store. And once again, palomaverdecbd.com for all of your CBD needs. Thank you. See, it's it's fine for us to say, oh, if voting really mattered, you know, they wouldn't leave a chance or, oh, I don't vote because it doesn't matter or whatever, or all these things, right? But there is a collective belief in the sanctity of voting. And it's almost a religious belief. And I think it would serve us for that religious belief to be destroyed. Like, I think it would serve us. So the reason I would like it to be exposed if there was absolute fraud or illegality around this is because it would bring to the surface the fact that that is possible and has is, is possibly been happening for a long time. And it maybe just happened in a more egregious way this time than ever before. It's not because I'm like, oh, I wish if Trump would have won, life would have been so different. No, I want people to recognize that we have not had the consent of the governed for a very long time. And right now we don't have the consent of the governed. So for me, I want to strike a blow to the narrative so that people can understand if there's no consent, then we are slaves. We have to have consent. And I really want us, and I'm not also, I know I'm going to rabbit trail, but I'm also not saying, oh, well, if we get to vote every four years, that's consent. No, I want this whole conversation of consent out in the open. Like, what does that even mean? What does it mean to have consensual government? And as long as we have this sort of charade and this like religious sacrament where we go and we pull a lever or touch a screen or fill out a box, and it's like, okay, whatever happens, I I voted and I accept the result. Like that whole thing, I I think keeps people very sedated. It keeps people very like, um, it keeps people very uninvolved. Actually, is the myth of how this country works. And so, I, I it's, really it's almost like a like if if uh, the voting is like a paying ticket to the show that <laughs> that you know. Whether it's good or bad, you just kind of you're voting, you're paying your ticket to the 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 narrative of life, of political life, or whatever it is. And you know, and, and hey, sometimes you pay your your voting ticket and you get this crazy show of the Trump show that comes on, and it, so it's kind of like that. Right? I'm hearing you talking like that, and I just thought, okay, everybody goes and pays, like you know, puts their ticket. I don't know, something like that. I'm I'm just freestyling a little bit. But yeah, yeah. yeah, but but you know, but listen, like what we want to talk about. What we care about is this deeper issue. Like, hey, this is called you and I have one life. And it's like we have a future we want to create for ourselves, for our family. Like we have, um, you know, dreams and desires and wealth and property and 
and legacy. We got all these things that are of significance to us. And this whole system of government is like a big parasite on all of that. And it's dragging us all down. And it's the productivity and the, the beauty and the flourishing we could be experiencing would be so different, you know? And so I know a lot of people want to just be like, yes, so that's why we need anarchy. And it's like, listen, guys, most people are not ready for any of the stuff we have to say to them and or would want to say to them. And so what I am trying to do is I'm saying, hey, listen, over here, I think there's an impact I can make of trying to expose something here. And it's not about exposing whether the election was true or not, but I actually am trying to frame that story and that movie in terms of, you know, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to peacefully protest? And the fact that the elites actually are frightened and scared. I do think they're on the run a little bit. They're trying to find a way to make sure they can maintain control over the next decade. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that, um, you know, part of the part of the story for us was that as we were following the election, we had an opportunity to interview this guy with the horns and the face paint, Jake Angeli, with from the Q sent me movie, decided to make a whole separate movie about it because we interviewed him on the morning of January 7th, right after the 6th, before he got arrested, and he's been incarcerated ever since. And the, I just want to bring it up because what also came up out of this whole journey around the election was what happened on January 6th and how that event is going to be used to steal the liberty and freedom and the ability to peacefully protest and to, you know, all of these things that are very important as as humans and as people, um, they're trying to make it more difficult for us to do that because of a narrative around this event and how they're trying to paint that. And so that's also the, the thing is I'm making a movie about that because I think that's really important. And so I wouldn't have your audience think, oh, here's a guy making a movie about the election and following a bunch of MAGA guys. And now he's on doing it on January 6th, following a bunch of MAGA guys. And it's like, yeah, it just so happens that some of the most important liberty issues of our time are ones that are happening. Uh, a lot of the characters who are participating in this and that are being prosecuted in this and the outcomes that are going to happen from those prosecutions are MAGA people, Trump supporters, some of the most vocal. But the repercussions of what happens as a result is going to impact everybody. And so that's that's what I'm really trying to draw draw attention to through these events. And uh, speaking of characters, uh, the Q Shaman, uh, the the Vato with the horns. Uh, how did you, uh, uh, you know, get to the point where you're like, hey, we're going to interview this guy and make a doc, you know, documentary on him now or something like that. Like, 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 how do you, how, how did that story come, uh, come on your lap? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, he was, he was from Arizona and, um, he was participating in the stop the steal rallies. So when we went to Arizona, we were covering some stuff there. We saw him, he was out there, you know, with his get up and his sign. And then we were in, in DC in December and we started doing interviews out and at that time. And so we saw him again. And we're like, yeah, this guy's a character. Let's interview him. And he was actually wearing a hat and a suit at that time. He wasn't dressed up in his thing. And so we sat down with him and interviewed him for 20 minutes. And we didn't think we'd really ever see him again. We were just like, hey, why are you here? What are you doing? Whatever. Well, 
then when we were filming and I had a whole team in, in DC filming on the sixth and, um, you know, by the way, what we, none of us were anticipating what was going to happen on the sixth because what, what's, what Ali Alexander and the guys from Stop the Steal were trying to set up was just, they were trying to get over a hundred representatives to protest the elections, the electoral, the electoral votes in, in Congress. And so that's what the motivation for the, the two months leading up to the sixth were. And they had had over a hundred representatives, half a dozen senators that were going to protest. And so, and it was just constitutional process. So we were out there just filming. Could I, could I, um, could I interrupt a little bit? Just, 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 um, just to throw this little, uh, do you think that the people that are always the most vocal, like, uh, uh, I saw the trailer, like, uh, that guy you said, uh, the Ali guy, um, do you think that just like Trump or just like, you know, as a filmmaker that, that there's narratives that are seeded and planted in people's heads, but they just need the, fuel just you know you know how you were saying right oh they're doing the constitutional process but somewhere there's like a narrative build up like hey can we can we you know are we gonna storm the the like you know does is there any intention of that or was it clean like you're saying like no that wasn't the i know that wasn't but you know it's leading up to that man there was a lot of conversations about all kinds of uh stuff going on you know and especially in the you know, I didn't follow the cube movement, but there was a lot of people that would post about it. And, you know, your movie is Q sent me. So, I mean, Q narrative, even if that wasn't what those guys from the from the from the, the, the voting, the, the stopping the steal. I mean, it was like an intersection of narratives that just all this energy. So it was it. So it wasn't on purpose or I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm asking you, you know, like it just seems like. I don't know, man. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot you know, of there, shit, man. It's a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah, man. You, well, you're pointing at something there that I think is is really it's really insightful because because there was a intersection of a lot of different beliefs, ideas around what should happen next, and um, you know, like so. I would what I would say is that to the degree that you're going to have a million people and in any one location, DC at that day. And then, you know, sort of this, the way that everything went down in the months leading up to it, where a lot of the court cases around the election were thrown out, where you had a lot of people who felt like no one would hear their grievances. Okay. So, I mean, like if the Supreme Court would have heard the case, prior to January 6th, for example, right? Even if they would have said no, right? That might have, in my opinion, shut it down, right? There, there literally was no court hearing for the evidence, right? And people will disagree with me about this, but what, what I would say is there wasn't really a relief valve prior to January 6th, right? You, you continued to have rally after rally, setback after setback, of a, a group of people who believe a certain thing, even if it's not true, I'm not going to say whether it's true or not. I'm saying, but they're they're com- committed to this belief. I, you have people quitting their jobs to go tour the country for this. Okay, they they believe it. They're committed to it. And then with Q, you have more. You have a greater number of people attracted to an interesting conspiracy theory that there's actually sort of a deeper deep state 
that's working this alternate plan and then we're going to find this other outcome like right so it's a yeah you've got a you've got a bit of a powder keg there of ideas and so i i think what it only took was it being sort of pushed in the right direction and but what i would say is that that pushing i don't think came from any of the official leaders of the organizations that were pretty singular in their mission, which was what was supposed to happen was there was going to be speeches for three to four hours on a little stage near the Capitol. Now, um, I think there's a lot of people who could look at the day and be like, well, you're going to put a thousand, a million people in, in the Capitol. And then, you know, and at the same time, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it never once occurred to me that like there would be some way I could get into the Capitol that day, like going to DC. It just didn't occur to me. Like I, I just was like, surely you couldn't get in there. The fact of the matter was, it was super easy. Like it was not hard at all for these people to get in there. So, and and that's even another whole thing. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think you had the intersection of the numbers, passion, beliefs, and then I think seeded with some federal agents and infiltrators, which I believe anytime you add any significant number of people in any movement that opposes authority, whether right or left, and you can go all the way back into the 60s and see how this happened with the Black Panthers, all these other, you know, anti-establishment groups, they've been doing it forever. You got to assume that there are, there's agents in there. And so I think all of that stuff coming together created what it created. And it, 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 it and now it is like one of the most significant days in recent American history. And so when it happened, we were surprised. And what, what ended up happening is I saw, you know, my co-director sent me a photo of Jake, you know, from the Senate. It's like famous, you know, and he was like, Jake made it inside, like surprise. That's what he wrote to me. And so the re the way we got the interview is we already had a cell phone number because we'd already interviewed him a month ago. We'd, we'd seen him a few times. And when we asked him if he wanted to interview, he was like, yeah, sure. And so we set it up for him to come in the next morning. We didn't think he was going to show up partially because we're like, there's no way he's coming in. We're like, he's he's leaving the city. He's not going to hang around. Sure enough, he showed up. Uh, January 7th, we're there at the uh, JW Marriott. He came up. He sat with us for over an hour. We just talked to him. He just told us a story. And he still didn't think he'd done anything wrong. He didn't think he was going to be in any trouble. And so, you know, we got the whole story. And in fact, we got it in a way he would never be able to tell it again. Because it was before he spoke to the FBI. It was before he got arrested. It's before he spent 300 days in solitary confinement. And now he's in jail facing the balance of about 30 months that he's going to serve for a nonviolent crime of interrupting Congress. So the reason we were able to get it was simply because we were out on the road before, had built a relationship with him. And, and frankly, that's one of the things I would say about um, trying to make powerful documentaries, especially, is creating relationships and building trusted access is one of the most critical things you need to do as a filmmaker. You know, so many of the things that we got, I mean, being able to get to a place where Ali Alexander would have even agreed to let us come in and film 
because he was concerned that we would come in and film and, and try to tell a, uh, an incorrect story, that we would just want to do a smear job, right? Same thing with Jake. Like, we had opportunities to sell the footage to major networks for them to just do a hit piece on it. But that's not what we were interested in doing. And we gave our word to him that we weren't going to do that. And so, you know, journalistic integrity is what's important for us. But, you know, it's just very interesting, the whole process about how we've been able to get there with him. And to the point that we just had a four-hour phone call with him from jail last a week ago. You know, we still have a relationship with him um, until the point that we're going to bring this film out. Uh, hopefully, you know, by June of next month, you'll have an opportunity to see it. Or of, of next year, excuse me. So, um, yeah, but but that's how that kind of went down. And, 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 and once we interviewed him, we really realized, man, this is a, this is a, quite a story. And then once he got arrested uh, two days later, we recognized we might have gotten the only interview with him that he would give. And so there was a bit of exclusivity to it. And so we pivoted to interview his friends, family, his lawyer, you know, tried to dig deeper, find out more about him and, and all of that. And it was only as that began to unfold that the importance and the politicization of January 6th started to become even more evident. So that's why we've been in the production for so long. It's, it's a, going on a year right now. Uh, we'd hoped to already have it out, but we didn't know how the story was going to end until just like a month ago. So Yeah, um, man, uh, when you were talking right now and like tying up this whole conversation together, I pictured um, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Trump, and the Q Shaman going down like going down the aisle at like a, a wwe event man like and like just like i don't know why it just it just that it, that just seems like it ties it all together for me and uh thank you for coming on man uh could you uh please uh, uh plug in where people can go to the website so they can uh help you um on your efforts here and then how can they can reach you on your new accounts or whatever accounts you yeah. have going on please yeah 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 so people can check out thesteel.com that is where we have a trailer and a little bit about the election film that film is going to come out at the tail end of 2022 if we stay on track um then qsentmemovie.com is the story about jake angeli you can see him i was just recently on tucker carlson talking about it we've got a great trailer there people can sign up for updates and part of the reason that's important is because you know we still have trouble even getting the word out about this film. Uh, so the only way is for us to build an email list and keep directly in touch with people, let them know uh, on updates. And I'll, I'll make one final plug. We started a new podcast called Cancel Proof uh, just a couple weeks ago. We did a soft launch. Um, and, you know, part of what we were also trying to figure out is, and, and we talk about filmmaking, the stories we're doing. We do a lot of behind the scenes stuff and, you know, uh, just banter about what's going on. But what's interesting is that YouTube already pulled down two of our videos of from that podcast. One was with an interview with Jake's best friend that he rode back and forth to DC from. And the other one was we just I did a live stream um of one of Jake's hearings where he was choosing his uh new new counsel for appeal. And you know, YouTube takes it down and they call it inciting violence and it's like this is like crazy but the narrative around january 6th is sacred that's what i believe 
And I believe it's very, very important for people to recognize that. That most of what people have heard about it is wrong. Most of it, most of it has been very, very shaped and crafted. And I think that people who love liberty need to recognize how that narrative is, is going to be used, unless we can stop it, of curtailing their ability to protest, to vote, and to just overall express their political ideas in public. So uh, cancelproof.tv is the third link. And you can find me there and then just follow down the trail. But dude, thank you so much for having me on. Perfect. This a great conversation. So thoughtful. I love a lot of your questions and I and, uh, appreciate what you're doing, man. Cool, man. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we'll have you back on again when the, the movies come out. For sure. Peace. Later.